Thanksgiving, now what? What's next? It seems like all the attention is focused on this one day where everybody sets aside the commandment not to commit gluttony, and we celebrate our annual day of Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving, but just three days ago, and it seems like it's just in the distant past. Thanksgiving has three of my favorite things. It has family, food, and football. And if they could do that every weekend, I'd celebrate it every weekend. But I still can't help but think about today. The football games are over. Everyone slept off their turkey overdose. The family has left, and that's cause for Thanksgiving for some people. And the Christmas holiday officially begins. Another Thanksgiving has come and gone. I mean, think about that. That one day each year that we as a nation set aside to count our blessings and to say thank you to God. All attention was on God and his blessings for one day. And now life is going to get back to normal. And unfortunately for a lot of people, normal means that annual moment of gratitude to God is over. God gets put back with all the other holiday paraphernalia, and it won't be taken out again until 2019, Thanksgiving Day. I hope that's not the case here. Because as believers, it shouldn't be an annual day of gratitude to God and counting blessings. It should be a daily gratitude to God and counting our blessings. Just in one day, our country went from a grateful nation to Black Friday. Think about that. From a grateful nation to Black Friday. And I, I think about that, and I think about something Paul wrote long ago to the church in Thessalonica. And he said, Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Over the years, people have come to me time and again and say, How can I know God's will? What's God's will for my life? Well, here is God's will for your life. It's found in Scripture. He wrote it down so there'd be no misunderstanding. It's God's will for you and I to give thanks to God in all circumstances in Christ Jesus. And then I think about something else Paul said to the people of his day. And I think if he were standing on this stage today, he would say the same thing to the people of our day still today. For far too many people, he would say, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Makes you wonder, what is it going to take for us to live our lives daily with hearts full of gratitude toward God? What's it going to take? Well, the first thing it's going to take is a decision that I am going to live a thankful, grateful life. That God has blessed me so many ways so many times, for so many years, how could I not be grateful? That's where the story in today's text comes in. We're going to be looking in Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to see a story there that though maybe not as dramatic in our lives, it's a story that many of us have experienced. It caused us to cross that line of faith, raise the white flag of surrender, give our hearts to Jesus and become Christians. Isaiah was a man who lived a pretty godly life. He had heard of God since his childhood. He had worshipped God countless times over countless years. And he had honored God with his life for most of his adult life by this time. 
But one day, something happened that was so radical. Something happened that so overwhelmed him with gratitude that it changed the course of his life forever. You know what it was? He got a glimpse of God. Just a glimpse. Some people here have had a glimpse of God too. Not the vision type. Not where the, the skies and the heavens open up and, and there's the throne room of God. But that, that acknowledgement, that realization, that moment of realization that says he is a good, good father. Isaiah got a glimpse of God and we can read about that encounter in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6. It says, in the, in the year that King Isaiah died... I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe unto me, I cried, I'm ruined. For I, have a man, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This event changed his life. Uzziah had been king since Isaiah was 16 years old. For 52 years, Uzziah had ruled the nation of Israel. His rule produced a time of peace and prosperity like most people had never seen. It's been an era of expansion and achievement. Vineyards had been developed. Waterways and roads were built during his reign. Military victories were won. Entire cities were erected and populated under the reign of King Uzziah. But just like America, though they were materially prosperous, the country was spiritually destitute. They had forgotten about God. They stopped being grateful they gave no thought to the blessings that God had poured out on them. Just like America today, they had lost their spiritual moral compass, forgetting God or just simply ignoring God. And now the king was gone. News spread like wildfire in every direction. From village to village and town to town came to the news, the king is dead. It would be comparable to the day that JFK was assassinated here in America. Everybody was talking about it. The buzz was everywhere. There was no other topic discussed or thought about. It was a time of national mourning and distress that day. But for Isaiah, it was a time of personal mourning and personal distress. King Isaiah was the only king Isaiah had ever known. The only one that had ever ruled over him, the only one he had ever submitted to and looked to and trusted. And now the one throne that Isaiah had always looked for and looked to for support and hope, now for the very first time ever, that throne was empty. 
And so was his soul. So was his heart. So was his life. And at that moment, maybe the darkest moment in Isaiah's life, Isaiah saw another throne. God's throne in heaven. And everything changed. You know, often before a person can see God, there has to be the death of something that rules in their life. Whatever ruler is seated on the throne of that person's life. It could be a relationship that is not honoring or pleasing to God. It could be a career that's a good thing, but it's overtaken your entire life. It could be the self-centeredness that we all struggle with. Remember, it's always about us. Whatever sits on the throne of our lives needs to die in order for us to possibly get a clearer view of God and his goodness. Things that are so prevalent in our lives that we lose our view of God or we see an obstructed view of God's goodness and God's greatness. That thing that distracts us from the gratitude that we should feel in our hearts every day. God's goodness is God's glory. God's greatness is God's grace. His goodness and his greatness are his glory and his grace. But you know, when earthly rulers die or are dethroned, then the ruler of heaven often is more clearly seen. When the things that really don't matter fade away, when life comes crashing down, doesn't make any sense, when the distractions, those things that occupy our time and our mind, somehow disappear, all thoughts turn to God. That's when God can, see, can be more clearly seen. Human kings come and go, but God's throne is always occupied. The only king worthy of our gratitude and our one and only life's devotion is a king who will always be there, even throughout all eternity. The scene around God's throne is kind of freaky, kind of weird. I'm not sure what seraphs are. They may be those fat babies with wings. I don't know. But I know they got six wings. And I don't understand what's going around the throne of God and and what's happening during this scene. But you've got to describe it in one word, awesome. John describes the same throne room scene in the book of Revelation. Listen to what he says. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Wouldn't you love to see that? You know, we we can see that. We We don't see it with our eyes. We see it with our mind's eye. We see it with our hearts. We see it from a spiritual view, if you will. As Isaiah saw this same scene that John just described, reverence for God was not a problem. I'm always cautious, suspicious. Okay, I just don't believe them. When people say I've had a vision from God and they come off arrogant because being in God's presence brings everybody low. It doesn't lift people high. 
Anybody who's truly seen God is humbled by the experience. That was the case for Isaiah here. He was already considered the holiest man on earth. He was respected as a paragon of virtue, morality, and godliness. And suddenly, he finds himself in the very presence of God. He got his first glimpse of a holy God. And at that moment, every ounce of pride and self-righteousness in him was shattered. He was in the presence of the absolute standard of holiness. You know, in the very previous chapter, chapter 5 of this book, Isaiah looked at the people of Israel, and six times he rebuked them. He pointed his finger at them and he said, Woe is you, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. Six times. And he got one glimpse of God, and the first thing he said is, Woe is me. No longer woe is everybody else, woe is me. But when he sees God and his righteousness and holiness, his righteousness and holiness didn't hold up very well. When he compared himself to other people, he looked pretty good, but one second in God's presence annihilated him. He came apart at the seams and he said, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people with unclean lips. He was racked with regret and remorse over his sin and he realized that he had used his lips for everything at times except thanking God for all of his kindness, all of his goodness, and all of his grace. The same thing happened to Job. Job said, My ears had heard of you, Lord, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I know everyone here has heard of Jesus. And I've been praying for this message that somehow in God's own way, he would let each of us see him. Get a glimpse of him, understand him, see it with our mind's eye. See it with spiritual vision. My prayer is that we will see him today because when people get a glimpse of God, it doesn't make us proud, it makes us humble. But it makes us something else. It makes us grateful. It makes us thankful. And it breaks us and it changes us forever. Notice that Isaiah did not confess what he did. He confessed what he was. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. See, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners by nature. We somehow think that we're the good guys because we found Jesus. Well, actually, we didn't find Jesus. Jesus found us. And when people say, have you accepted Jesus? When I became a Christian, I begged Jesus to accept me. Because I knew who I was and what I'd done. I remember somebody came to, to church one time and they said, well, first time there, he said, well, if you knew who I was and what I've done, you wouldn't want me in your church. I said, well, you, if you knew who I was and what I've done, you wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> a true vision of God gives us a truer vision of ourselves. God doesn't grade on the curve. Romans says, Jesus came to redeem the wicked. That's us. We are the wicked that have been redeemed. We get a better view of our own condition when we see God in his true place. 
We see ourselves as helpless sinners desperately needing mercy and grace and forgiveness. And all three are found in Jesus and Jesus alone. As this scene is unfolding, immediately one of the seraphs fly into action. And one of the greatest wonders the world will ever see takes place. And I'll bet you didn't see it. Remember John's description of heaven? In the middle of that scene, with 10,000 upon 10,000 heavenly hosts circling the throne of God, shouting to each other and singing, holy, holy, holy. Through the smoke and the brilliance of God's throne room and over the sound of shaking doorposts and shaking thresholds and over the deafening, reverberating voices of 10,000 angels singing in unison, holy, holy, holy. God heard the voice of one guilty man. He heard his voice amidst all of that worshipful chaos. He heard the voice of one guilty man confessing his sin and repenting. And immediately God commissions a heavenly being to leave the place of worship he's been at since eternity past and go to a single person whose soul was in need of a savior. That is one of the most remarkable things anybody will ever see. If we can really grasp what that entails. And it says a live coal from God's altar is placed on his defiled lips and instantly Isaiah's sin problem is atoned for. He didn't have to work his way back into God's good grace. He didn't have to jump through hoops or spin plates or walk on hot coals. Instantly, the moment he confessed and repented, his sin was atoned for. I thought how tragic it would have been to only have a throne and not have an altar. Think about it. The throne of God's holiness brought conviction of sin, but God's altar of mercy brought the cleansing of sin. You know, the throne of God's holiness demands sin be convicted and punished. The wages of sin is death. And so God, righteous alone, would have to judge and condemn all of us. But there's an altar next to that throne. And that altar could be called the cross of Christ. Because that offer alters that altar offers cleansing and forgiveness of sin, atonement for sin. And that was the point, I believe, that Isaiah's life changed forever. And that's the whole point of this message. Because maybe none of us have found ourselves in a, such a dramatic scene as he did, but we're all just as guilty as he was. We're all sinners in need of a Savior, Helpless, hopeless sinners without a God of mercy who's willing to take our place, exchange his life for ours, his righteousness for our sin. We're all in the same condition he was. And in wonderment over a glimpse of the majesty of God and in gratitude of God's atonement and forgiveness for sin as a form of worship and a form of thanksgiving, Isaiah said, Here, my Lord, send me.
He didn't say, hey, thanks. I'll see you when I get to heaven and turn on his, spin on his heels and walk away and go on and live his life the same way. He said, no, this is too great. This can't go unappreciated. So as a form of worship and gratitude, he said, here am I, Lord, send me. He offers himself as a lifelong statement of gratitude and devotion. No other offering would do. No other act of gratitude would fit the act of grace. Because Jesus gave everything for us, we should give everything for him. With our one and only life, no other act of gratitude compares to the act of grace. If we want to live a life of thanksgiving, instead of celebrating just a day of thanksgiving like everybody else once a year, then we need a glimpse of Jesus. Again, I'm not talking about a vision. I'm not talking about the sky splitting open. I'm not talking about anything weird. I'm saying, stop and think about what's been done for you. Yeah, the the wages of sin is death. Your death and my death. Christ died for the world. But that's too big for us to wrap our mind around. And it's easy for us to fade into the background of the numbers of the world and forget that Jesus died for me. And for you, he knew the worst about you and did it anyway. He knew every sin that you committed in the past and every sin you're going to commit afterwards, after the fact, and he did it anyway. And if we ever get a glimpse of Jesus the way Isaiah did, it'll change our lives too. No longer just a day of gratitude and thanksgiving, but a lifestyle If we could see God on his throne, we would say what Moses said. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? We would say what David the psalmist said when he said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Getting a glimpse of God causes people to worship God like David is doing here, and like Moses was doing. Sometimes they sing, sometimes they talk, sometimes they act, but they're all acts of worship. And somewhere along the line, I'm afraid that we've lost sight of who God really is. We've kind of trivialized him, and we've kind of made him a buddy. He is a friend of sinners, just like you and I, but he is also the majestic Lord of heaven and earth and all the universe. He whispered, And the universe as we know it came into existence, the Bible said. The Bible said that the creation of the universe that we can't find the edges to, it's so vast and big, these are the minor works of God. A mere whisper. He didn't even have to yell to speak the universe into existence. He's the one the angels have delighted to adore and worship and serve for all eternity past. Let's don't lose sight of who it is that we get to worship. You know, Job, Job lost sight of that. You know, we all know the story of Job. We all feel like Job about once a month. But somewhere along the line, he lost sight of who God was. He forgot that he was the Lord of heaven and earth. And he started to shake his fist in God's face and said, How could you let this happen to me? Listen how God responds to Job when he forgot who God was, when he stopped being thankful and started being entitled. Because Job suddenly 
forgot that he needed God's mercy and forgiveness. And so as he's shaking his fist in God's face, it says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. That's never a good sign when God says that, just so you know. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. God is saying, hey, Job, don't forget who you're talking to. Don't forget who I am. God was reminding Job of two things. Job's unrighteousness and God's righteousness. In the same conversation, again, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. And he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid the cornerstone? While the morning stars gathered together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the door when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. And when I said, this far you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. God spoke to the ocean, said, you can come this far and no further. God is reminding Job, Job, don't forget who you're talking to. Later through Isaiah, God calls himself the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Could we not worship someone like that? Could we forget to be grateful and thankful for all of his goodness and kindness and mercy and forgiveness and all the blessings, and one day we're thanking God for all he's given us on Thanksgiving, and on Black Friday we're upset about all the things we don't have. From, from grateful to forgetful in one day, from focusing on our blessings and gratitude to God for those blessings to the very next day, thinking about Christmas and savings and sales and gifts. All the while, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity must look at us and think, have you forgotten who I am and what I've done? The thought of one as great as God taking time even to notice us, let alone forgive us and save us and spend eternity with us, is almost unbelievable. It seems too good to be true, but it's too great to be missed. And so many people miss it. The only thing more unbelievable is the ingratitude we all seem to be able to show in spite of God's goodness toward us. That momentary day of gratitude, thanksgiving. We all tend to treat God so casually. We give him platitudes instead of gratitude. And instead of asking what God has done for us lately, which we should be asking what David the psalmist asked when he said, how can I repay the Lord for all of his goodness toward me? Not toward the world, but toward me. We should be saying what David said when he said, I am under vows to you, O God. I will present my thank offerings to you. For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. 
That sounds like what should be coming out of the lips and out of the hearts and out of the lives of people who have been saved from their sin by the God of heaven. We should embrace the challenge and admonition of King David when he said, enter his, court, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. And notice he said, enter. Don't come here waiting for somebody to fire you up with gratitude and worship. It says, enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. He said, let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. David said, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. We're going to do that in just a minute. Again. But Paul tells us that singing songs of worship and gratitude isn't enough. It's certainly not enough if this is the only time we do that. I don't know about you, but I can't carry a tune in a bucket and I don't sing anywhere but here. And if that's the only way we can worship God, then I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. We worship God in song, but we worship God with words, with actions and deeds and attitudes. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brother, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Worship is an act. Worship takes place when people say, here am I, Lord, send me, use me. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll say what you want me to say. But for your sake, for God's sake, send me. Paul told the Hebrew, uh, said in Hebrews, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Blessing other people blesses God. And blessing God is the definition of worship. That's why this church is so active in the community, feeding the poor, reaching out to the young, the disenfranchised, the forgotten, the homeless. These are all spiritual acts of worship. Paul told the Colossians, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is the life of thanksgiving. It's not a holiday. It's not a day every November. It's a lifestyle. In short, when you get a glimpse of God and his goodness and his mercy, you remember how thankful you should be. And you'll ask, what can I give back to God for all of his goodness toward me? How could I repay him for all of his kindness? And when you ask that question with a sincere heart, there's only one answer. Worship. Gratitude. Thanksgiving. And like Isaiah That's when you say, here am I, Lord, send me. And you say, thank you. And you worship God with your life. That's what happens after Thanksgiving in the life of believers. So I want to issue a couple challenges for everybody right now. First of all, I want us to take 30 seconds. And I'd like everybody to say a personal prayer of Thanksgiving to God right now. Doesn't seem long enough, does it? There's too much. 
That's why it takes a lifetime to thank him. The second challenge, we're going to do another song to close this service. Don't just sing the words of the song. Worship, worship Jesus during this song. Like I said, it's something we get to do here that we may not do any other place. So make this song of worship just that, a song of worship. And the final challenge is commit your lives to serving Jesus for the rest of your life. Serve Jesus with your one and only life. Make your life a living sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have so much to be thankful for. And we're so inclined not to be grateful. And I pray that would change today. And Lord, it's not going to change by our determination because we're too weak. So I ask God that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would remind us to be grateful. You would remind us of all your goodness and your kindness and your greatness, your mercy and your forgiveness. You would remind us of how well you have loved us and help us to love you better than we ever have before. In Jesus' name, amen.